Well, good morning. We have made it to chapter four of Jonah this morning. Remember, remember all that time ago we read Jonah in like, I think it took us like 11 or 12 minutes to read through the whole of the book of Jonah. And I was like, we're going to talk about this for seven weeks. And you were like, no chance. And here we are six weeks later. And we finally made it to the final chapter. We're in page 65 of the journal, uh, if you are taking notes. But let's, let's remember, let's do a very brief reminder of the journey, which will help us see some of the stuff, perhaps, anyway, that are happening today. If you recall, as we've looked at this story of Jonah, we've been asking multiple questions about this text and what is this text doing to us as we read it. A really good question to actually ask about all Scripture is what is this doing to me when I read it? And... In fact, let me just pause on that for a second, because as I even hear myself say that, I want to, like, that is the question, right, that we should almost always be asking when we open the text. Uh, and one of the things you'll notice, uh, hopefully you'll notice, and if you don't, let me point it out, I, I often want to resist the tendency uh, of the preacher to tell you what to do with the text, like, like most of us as humans like telling people what to do, right? And there's a real tendency sometimes for the preacher to go, okay, now at the end of my sermon, let me tell you what to do with that. And, and what I try to do, and, and I do fail at this regularly, so I am asking your forgiveness in here. We can pray about that at the end. But, but what I want to prefer and try and do as, as a teacher is actually say, what is the text doing in you? Right? What is the Spirit saying to you as you read this text? Not, not what do I think is being said here, but what is God churning in your heart and, and pointing out to you? And Jonah is a fascinating text for that series of questions because as we were reading it, at first level, we thought, okay, this is a story which we have some familiarity with. As we start to read it, we're, we begin to become suspicious that this author is trying to do something. And this author is creating links that are calling us to pay attention carefully. In chapter one, we noticed that the story at one level could appear just like a story of a man fleeing God, but we noticed that the style of the story, the way that the story was told, referenced the sort of Eden story. It referenced humanity's tendency to run away from God's plans and processes, and even though God has good things for us, we think we can do them better on our own. So if you remember, we said chapter one is almost the human story that we see in Eden and we see throughout Scripture. And then we got to chapter two, and Jonah at this point has been thrown into the sea and, and is being eaten by a fish, and he prays this prayer to God. But we noticed, if you remember, when we looked at chapter two, that the way that Jonah phrases this prayer sort of alludes to all of the great sea rescues of the Old Testament, of the flood, but also of the rescue from Exodus. So we started to see that again in this prayer, there's these allusions to the deeper sense of God as rescuer. Then we got to chapter three. We kind of noticed the irony of the story, if you remember, that we, we, we discovered that Nineveh is called Nineveh after the river god Nina, who is who is a fish, and so we laughed at the thought that God said to Jonah, go to the fish city and preach to them, and Jonah said no and jumped in the lake instead, and God sent a fish to bring him to fish city. Well, I laughed at that. You thought that was strange. Um, and uh, so, so in, but in chapter three, we noticed that again, the Ninevites, despite Jonah's awful sermon, the Ninevites completely and totally repented from king to cows, right? The extents of the repentance in Nineveh was, was almost a caricature of repentance, that like even the cows are walking around with sackcloth, mourning their 
horrendous sins. And yeah, and, uh, and we thought, okay, something seems to be going on there because, because this is like Jonah's sermon was awful and everybody responded really, really positively to it. And now we get to the fourth section of the book, which helpfully is chapter four. Um, and what you'll notice as you start to read chapter four, that it now starts to reflect another part of scripture again. So we saw the kind of Exodus story. We saw the, the Genesis story. We saw some of the theology of repentance story. And now... Again, the author changes style, and it starts to sound a little like Ecclesiastes and a little like Job, these wisdom literature books from the Old Testament. Now, that's quite an important observation to make because wisdom literature, actually at some level all scripture, but wisdom literature particularly, books like the Proverbs, like Ecclesiastes, like Job, these are the sort of texts that ask us to do a little bit of work. They're the sort of texts that don't give us easy answers, that they actually throw ideas at us and say, go chew on this for a while. Ecclesiastes, for example, or Job, for example, are not the sort of books you should only read once. You should read them a few times and pay attention to what's going on. But perhaps there's a principle underneath wisdom literature that's important for us all the time, and that is that you can't get simple answers to complex questions, as much as we want that. We want complex questions to be answered with simple answers. And, and we, Christians particularly, have done a horrible injustice to God and Scripture for constantly saying, well, it's really simple, actually. But life is not simple. If you've lived more than five minutes, your life has complexities to it. It has paradoxes to it. It has competing ideas. And sometimes you find yourself saying, I just don't know what to do with the two ideas that I hold that don't seem to go together. The wisdom literature is your place if you think like that, if you find yourself aware of the complexity of life, there are sections of scripture that invite you to that wrestle. I love how Jared Bias puts it. He says, these books are not instruction manuals, they're workouts, and their very structure produces wisdom in their leaders, in their readers, sorry. Now, you know this truth, right? Maybe you at some point in your life have hired a coach or subscribed to a new fitness regime you know that there's a huge difference between reading the instructions and doing the workout. Like, you know that, don't you? Like, I, I for some time in my life, was a sponsor of a gym. And <laughs> you know what I mean by that, right? And, and, and there's a huge difference between giving the gym your money and actually getting fit, right? And those two things are not the same. And, and, and it's the same when it comes to wrestling with Scripture. Simply reading it isn't always all that is needed. Sometimes you're going to have to work on this and chew on this and wrestle with this. So with that in mind, let's go to the final chapter of Jonah and its whole entire 11 verses. It's, it begins like this, but to Jonah, this seemed very wrong. Now, you have to remember what we talked about last week in chapter three. If you weren't here last week, I'm gonna leave you in suspense for a little bit. Uh, you can listen to the podcast later if you want. But notice how it starts. To Jonah, this seemed very wrong, and he became angry. He prayed to the Lord, isn't this what I said, Lord, when I was still at home? This is what I tried to forestall by fleeing to Tarshish. I knew that you are a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger and abounding in love, a God who relents from sending calamity. Now, Lord, take away my life, for it is better for me to die than to live. 
But the Lord replied, is it right for you to be angry? Jonah had gone out and sat at a place east of the city. There he made himself a shelter, sat in its shade and waited to see what would happen to the city. Then the Lord God provided a leafy plant and made it grow up over Jonah to give shade for his head to ease his discomfort. And Jonah was very happy about the plant. But at dawn the next day, God provided a worm, which chewed the plant so that it withered. When the sun rose, God provided a scorching east wind, and the sun blazed on Jonah's head so that he grew faint. He wanted to die and said, it would be better for me to die than to live. And God said to Jonah, is it right for you to be angry about the plant? It is, he said. <laughs> I'm so angry, I wish I were dead. But the Lord said, you have been concerned about this plant, though you did not tend it or make it grow. It sprang up overnight and died overnight. And should I not have concern for the great city of Nineveh, in which there are more than 120,000 people who cannot tell their right hand from their left, and also many animals. And that is the end of Jonah. Now, so there's a big reveal going on here. If you've been tracking with us in this whole story, Jonah 4 verse 1 gives us the first time we actually figure out what Jonah's issue is. We've been supposing what it is, and most of us have kind of held to the point, as you read Jonah, if you were reading it for the first time or you remember what it was like to read it for the first time, you come to the conclusion, Jonah doesn't like Ninevites. <laughs> yeah, okay, we got that, right? And Jonah doesn't like Ninevites. And then if you really paid attention, you're like, oh, okay, Jonah also doesn't want the Ninevites to receive any forgiveness or mercy. But here at chapter four, you find out actually what's going on. Jonah's problem isn't that he doesn't like the Ninevites and isn't that he doesn't want them to repent. It's that Jonah's problem is he knows what God's like. And nobody saw that coming. Jonah's actual issue is God. Jonah's actual issue is the way he is. Now, this is quite fascinating, actually, because this is a prophetic text. Now, if you grew up in Hebrew school, and I've asked you a lot to imagine growing up in Hebrew school, and not one of you have signed up for Hebrew school, despite my constant pushing it. It's just me on my own every Shabbat. And, um, <laughs> and uh, if you grew up reading these texts all the time and engaging with them, you'd know something. And this would be it. You've read prophetic texts before, and here's what happened. The prophet comes along and says, Things are bad, and they're going to get worse. You need to sort this out. And the people say, or we could do our own thing. And then the bad things happen, and the prophet despairs because nobody seems to listen to them, right? So you see this, for example, in uh, Jeremiah chapter 7, for example. Jeremiah's like, look at the ancient paths. Walk in the way of God on the ancient path. This will lead you to justice and truth and hope. And the people say, no. Uh, we're going to go this way instead because we like the look of it. Um, Isaiah, Isaiah chapter 30 and verse 15, the Lord says, in repentance and rest is your salvation. In quietness and trust is your hope. And the people of Israel say, or we could buy horses from Egypt and battle our enemies, which doesn't work well for them. 
this is the pattern, that the prophet says something and the people ignore it. The people, generally speaking, don't repent and the prophet is angry or despairing or just fed up. Now, so you grow up reading these texts. Now you come to Jonah. The prophet is awful, right? He preaches this terrible sermon that doesn't really explain anything to anyone. And despite this five-word sermon with very little to understand in it, everybody from king to cow repents and does exactly what the prophet has spoke to them about. The people repent, they find God's mercy, and Jonah is angry about it. You see how the entire story that you're used to expecting when you read a prophetic text is upside down. The prophet's normally good. This prophet's awful. The people normally ignore him. These people, not Israelite people either, by the way, they listen absolutely to what is said. And actually, instead of Jonah being finally a prophet that people listen to, Jonah's mad. Look at the Hebrew text. This is a little more literal translation here. A lot of English translations say, you know, Jonah thought this was wrong. The literal Hebrew is, it was evil to Jonah, a great evil. And maybe you spot that word there. Go, wait a minute, there was a great city, a great storm, a great fish, and now a great evil, Jonah says. And there was heat anger in him. I don't need to explain heat anger to you. You know this anger, right? There's like anger and there's like heat anger. And, uh, and you know exactly, it's a beautiful, descriptive Hebrew term. Question, what is Jonah angry at? And where is Jonah at this point? Again, if you remember from last week, he, he turned up, preached his terrible sermon, and then sort of disappears from the story while all the Ninevites are repenting. So Jonah is, is currently, according to the narrative, still in Nineveh, watching people repent and receive God's grace and mercy. And Jonah's response is that's evil, and he is hot angry about it. Before we pile on Jonah, how do I respond when I see God's mercy? How do I respond when I see God's mercy shown to someone else? How do I respond when I see God's mercy shown to someone else whom I don't like, whom I don't think deserves God's mercy? Because Jonah's challenge here is all that he has ever seen so far in his life is God's mercy to his own people, his own tribe, the people within his own boundaries. So Jonah's mad. He is hot, angry. And he cites, he quotes the Bible to God. We've talked before about how this is a really bad strategy, but he goes with it anyway. So he quotes Exodus 34 to God. And he's like, God, I know what you're like. And I think when you read this, you've got to tone it right, right? Because it's so funny. Like, I know what you're like, God. You're like compassionate and you're like gracious and you're like slow to anger. These are good things, but Jonah's saying them, they're bad things. You are slow to anger. By the way, the Hebrew word for slow to anger, you have long nostrils. I mean, what a, what a stunningly descriptive phrase, right? And the theory being that the longer your nostrils are, that angry wind that forms up here that you're gonna snort out, by the time it gets to the end of your long nostrils, it's kind of cooled down a little bit. <laughs> and so, so, like, I mean, maybe that changes your visualization of God when you think of him now, like just God with long nostrils. Yet, God, you are compassionate and gracious. You have long nostrils. You abound in love and are faithful. You maintain love to thousands, and forgive wickedness, rebellion, and sin. Now, fun. 
I just have some fun. Go back to Exodus 34 at some point when you get a chance and read what's going on here. This is the most quoted description of God in the Old Testament, right? So the, several Old Testament writers, they use this text. We talked about this in week one. This is the way that the Old Testament likes to describe God. What's fascinating is in Exodus 34, when it's first used, it's a defense of God's behavior. And it's a defense of God's behavior because God has just rescued the Israelites from Egypt, a sea rescue, don't forget. Uh, He's brought them through the Red Sea or the Sea of Reeds. He's brought them through and he brings them to the base of Mount Sinai, calls Moses up to to the mountaintop to give Moses the guide for life that the Israelites are going to follow. Despite having been brought through the Sea of Reeds, rescued from the Egyptians and slavery, Moses disappears for as long as it takes God to write 10 sentences. And the people of Israel go, how about we find a different God? You know, humans haven't changed very much. Really short memories. God has long nostrils. We have short memories, right? And, um, and so they decide we need a new God. The problem is they're in a desert. Gods are in short supply. Gods prefer humid climates and that, that's just a joke. There's no history behind that. They, uh, and, and they decide, let's build a calf of gold, that that'll be our God instead. So Moses comes back down the mountain, realizes what, what on earth has happened while he was away, and God decides, okay, forget this. Let's just wipe the Israelites out and we'll start again, because this is just a gong show. I mean, that's the literal Hebrew is, is gong show. And, and And Moses gets into this argument with God, and it's the first time we see this concept of God repenting. And God decides not to destroy the Israelites. Why? Because this is who God is. He has long nostrils. He is abounding in love. So think about this. The first time we encounter this description of God, it's it's a defense of why has God not destroyed the, the, the Israelites? Why has God not done it? Because of who he was, despite their bad behavior. Jonah here cites it at God, despite the Ninevites' good behavior. You see the irony? The Ninevites are actually doing the right thing. And yet Jonah's like, oh my goodness, God, look at what you're like. You're compassionate and and forgiving. This is all despite the fact as well that the only reason Jonah exists is because God is like this. Because God had thought, maybe we should wipe the Israelites out and start again. And in the end, his character decided, no, We're going to stick with these people because this is who I am. So you see this deep irony that's being stitched together here for us, that Jonah only has this role, only has life because God is like this. And yet now that God is like this, Jonah is angry, angry at God's abounding love. But it is worth asking the question of ourselves, isn't it? Who might God show mercy to that would elicit this response from me. Like, where are the times where I'm like, God, I wish you would punish more? Where are the times where I'm like, God, I wish you would deal with those people the way that I think they should be dealt with? And Yahweh asks this stunning question, is it right that you have hot anger? Now, one piece of biblical interpretation that can be a whole host of fun and sometimes can lead you to absolutely nothing at all. But, but, so just as a warning, but a really fun thing to do occasionally with scripture is when you encounter an unusual turn of phrase or an unusual word, it can be really fun to ask the question, where is the first time that I encountered this text in, in, in scripture? Right? This term heat anger or hot anger, however you want to translate it, 
It appears for the first time in a particular part of the Old Testament. You're probably not going to be surprised if you've been paying attention to our talks so far over the past six weeks. But the first time we encounter it is in Genesis, right around the creation story. And it appears for us for the very first time with Adam and Eve's children. Adam and Eve have two children to begin with. They have Cain and they have Abel. You may be aware of this story. It's in Genesis 4. I'll let you deep dive into it later if you want to. But Cain is the first person in Scripture that has this Hebrew concept of heat anger about them. Why? Well, again... You may want to read the story in your own time, but here's my very quick praise of it. Cain and Abel both bring offerings to God for reasons that no scholar can agree on. God likes Abel's offering more than Cain's. Cain, super chill about this. He's like, hey, you know what? Some days you win, some days you lose. No, Cain has heat anger, right? Cain is absolutely livid about the fact that Abel's offering was more favorable to God than his. So Cain decides to be insanely rational about this and deeply chill and kills Abel. Um, So it's the first murder. So heat anger, the first heat anger leads to the first death in the whole of scripture. Now think about that. Cain perceives that God has shown favor to Abel that Cain didn't want shown to Abel. He wanted shown to himself. So God then encounters Cain, but not Abel. And God says to Cain, where is Abel? And Cain replies in a very famous piece of biblical text, I don't know, he replies, am I my brother's keeper? I'm sure you've heard that phrase before. Even if you've never read the Bible, you've heard somebody say this. Now just think about this for a second. It's the first time in scripture we encounter this term heat anger. And Cain is, this is the story. Someone else got God's favor and Cain doesn't care about them. Anyone? You see Jonah and Nineveh? You know, they got God's favor and Jonah doesn't like them. He doesn't care about them. He doesn't want them to get God's favor. So this idea of this heat anger is stitching us together that we're being told by the writer, hey, by the way, watch what's happening to Jonah here. This is the human problem once again, that we get super angry when God shows mercy to others. I mean, and this is deeply ironic. There's irony upon irony in chapter four of Jonah, because remember where he was in chapter two? He was literally sinking to the place of the dead, the the gates of Sheol, Jonah says, and God rescues him from death and vomits him out onto the vomits him out onto the shore, rescues his whole life, and here's Jonah now angry that other people are getting mercy. People that have turned to God, Jonah was rescued while running away from God. I mean, there's deep irony going on here. So he flees east this time. Jonah leaves Nineveh and heads east. West didn't work for him, the whole fish story. So now this time he decides, let's go a different direction. And he builds himself a shelter. Now I'm super excited to talk to you about shelters for a long time. So it's going to be all of next week's sermons, mostly about shelters. Um, I mean, how exciting is that, right? Um, but, But he makes a shelter and he sits in its shade. But the shelter's obviously clearly not doing a great job. So then the Lord comes along and feel the Eden story resonances here. Creator God comes along and he provides, there's that word again. He provides a plant that grows up and shades Jonah. 
Now remember, the writer's playing with us all the time, trying to draw our attention to things. The creator God makes a plan. Another thing you saw, by the way, in the Eden story was Adam and Eve, when they had kind of fallen out with God and decided to do their own thing, they made coverings for themselves. But their coverings weren't very good, so God makes better coverings for them. Can you see how this story is sort of connecting? We're seeing that even in our places of rebellion, God is still caring for us and looking after us. Now, why is that important? It's a kind of neat quirk to see, but God provides covering for Adam and Eve. God provides covering for Jonah. But of course, this is the story of our God. As Christians, we read this text and remember that Jesus provides covering for us, that he covers our sin, he covers our shame. So we're actually also seeing just God being God here in that beautiful, graceful way that God is. Jonah is mad that God's graceful. So how does God respond? He's graceful to him. I mean, that's pretty cool, right? <laughs> I mean, I think that's pretty cool that God is graceful to us, but I mean, I appreciate you're not sold on, on it entirely based on your response right now. But like, that's why I was singing this morning. So I'm just like, I'm on my own here, thankful that God is graceful. <laughs> Don't worry, I'll keep laughing, okay? What's going on here is that Jonah's trying to build a shelter to make his own Eden. Remember we saw that in chapter one, that he's trying to make his own Eden. He's trying to, to develop things the way that, that he wants. And God comes along and gives Jonah what he really needs, actual shelter from this son. And for the first time in the entire book, did you see it? The first time, Jonah was happy <laughs> for about a night. <laughs> because notice what happens then. God provided a leafy plant. Remember, God provided a storm. God provided a fish. Now God spoke to the fish. The fish provided Jonah a way to dry land. Now God provides a leafy plant, but he also provided, same word, a worm. And what did the worm do? Well, the worm actually in Hebrew does the same thing that the sun does. It attacks. The Hebrew word is attacks. The word's all the way through the Joshua story of whenever the Israelites move in and take on a city, it's the same word. So this worm comes and attacks the plant and the sun comes and attacks Jonah's head. And where do we end up? Jonah's back to where we're more comfortable seeing Jonah. He's fed up, angry, and now he wants to die again and despairs of his life. So God comes back to Jonah and asks him the question for a second time with a slight variation. Is it good? The Hebrew is good. We often translate it right, but I love this notion of good. Is it good that there is heat anger to you over this plant? Jonah's answer? Yes. <laughs> it is right that I am mad about this plant. And then the Lord drops this conversation on Jonah. It's the end of the book. It's the final words of the book of Jonah. And what it actually is structured like is what philosophers now would call an a fortiori argument. Uh, the Hebrews called it a kal vahomer argument, a light to heavy argument. So the principle is you, you build a claim based on a small something and then apply that small something to a big something. Jesus does this all the time. It's very rabbinic. Jesus says, look at the sparrow. The sparrow is cared for. How much more do you think God cares about you if this is how much he cares about a tiny sparrow? That's a, a light to heavy argument. I'm not calling you heavy. The, but it's, but, but if, if God cares about sparrows, surely God cares more about you. This is the nature of the argument. You notice this is exactly the argument that God builds here for Jonah. Jonah, you did not make this plant. There was only one plant, Jonah. Jonah, you had one day to become attached to this plant and it brought you great joy, 
and you cared about it, but you've kind of lost the plot, Jonah, over the loss of this plant that you only knew for one day. It's not like your family's beloved dog, right? This is just like it's a one-day plant that you did nothing for, and look at how you're losing your mind. I mean, you have the same type of rage, Jonah, as Cain had when he killed his brother, and you're mad about the plant, right? Um, This is going to change your relationship with plants entirely. Every time you give somebody a plant from now on, if they've heard this sermon series, they'll be like, Whoa, what are you trying to say? <laughs> Calm down, man, seriously. Um, but then, then now, so that's the light argument. Look at how you care about this plant, Jonah, that you did nothing for and only knew for a day. So now then the Lord brings the heavy part of the argument. I made Ninevites. <laughs> and it's implied in so much of this because we know who God is, right? Yahweh is the creator of the Ninevites. There's 120,000 of them and animals, Yahweh is the creator, so presumably he's been caring for these Ninevites for longer than one day. Right? They have been on God's agenda for longer than one day. So given all of this, in no way is the plant to Jonah in any way as intense as the relationship between God and the Ninevites. But look, Jonah, how insanely angry you are at the death of your plant. And then you get this question. Given all this, shouldn't God have concern for the great city? There's that word again, great word again. Shouldn't God have concern about Nineveh? And the book ends with that hanging as the question. Now, I know that all of you were, while I was talking and reading through the text, were counting the words because that's what we do. If you were reading this in Hebrew, it's really kind of fascinating and it speaks to the fact the author's wanting you to pay attention. Because in the Hebrew text of Jonah chapter four, Jonah and Yahweh both get exactly 47 words, right? And that's kind, of, that's kind of funky, isn't it, right? Exactly 47 words. Even more interesting is they divide up perfectly equally. So Jonah opens the debate. He says 39 words to God. God responds with three. Remember the three? Is it good that you're angry? Hebrews allowed to, can, can say that much more succinctly than the slightly longer version that we have. Jonah then comes back with three more words, to which Yahweh then offers five words. Remember those? Is it good that you're angry about the plant? <laughs> Jonah replies with five more words. And then the Lord comes back with 39 words, exactly mirroring how Jonah started the conversation. Right? This level of symmetry is a Hebrew writer's way of saying, pay attention to this and maybe even start matching up the terms, matching up the sort of sections. Jonah opens with this sense that, can you think about, can you remember what Jonah's 39 words were? I know what you're like, God. You're compassionate, you're gracious, you're slow to anger. You're, you're always showing love and faithfulness. And do you remember God's 39 words? Shouldn't I care about Nineveh? Well, we've already been told what God is like. So we actually kind of know the answer to that question already, but it's all a way of the writer telling you, pay attention and wrestle with this because important stuff is happening here. But Jonah ends with this question, shouldn't God care? Shouldn't God care about these people? And the tension's left hanging for us. It's the only book in the whole Old Testament that ends with a question from God that is not answered in the text itself. But the words, I think the words are worth thinking about. Jonah's 47, God's 47. If you go back and read them in your own time, you'll notice that Jonah's 47 raised the question of justice. God, you need to do what I think is right here. You need to do what is just. And God's 47 words seem to relate to the question of his mercy. 
And which is the right thing to focus on? I don't know if you've ever had a conversation about God, but one of the things I've noticed as a pastor is whenever we talk about God's love, somebody raises the question of God's justice. And whenever we talk about God's justice, somebody raises the question about God's love. There's something of a paradox here that Jonah's words and Yahweh's words at the end of Jonah chapter four call us into this tension. And we often want an answer. God is either just or God is either merciful. And when God is given a chance to speak to this question, he asks a question. Shouldn't I care for Nineveh? That's the question that God leaves hanging for us. What we learn from Jonah, I think if we pay attention, is that God clearly cares for others more than we do. We see that, don't we? That we are Jonah. We so often fall into the trap of being Jonah. But what's so interesting is despite being recipients of God's mercy, we really do want justice. We want God to sort out. Well, actually, let me be clear. We want a very particular type of justice. (laughs) We want a justice on our enemies and the people that we don't like. But as I said, Jonah 4 is wisdom literature. It's not going to roll out a simple answer to this very complex question because this is a complex question. How do we deal with a God who calls us to help him put the world right but also seems to be relentlessly merciful? I don't have the answer for this, by the way. I'm just going to tell you that right now. (laughs) And I actually don't want to give an answer even if I did have one, which I don't. Because I'm actually coming to learn in my own journey that I think the reason that Jonah doesn't give us the answer is good for us because I think there's a maturity to reading text and therefore a maturity to being a Christian that rejects the simple answers and actually is prepared to navigate the more choppy waters of tension and reality. That life isn't simple, that we don't have all the data, that if we were left to dish out justice, we would probably do it wrongly. And Jonah is one of the reasons we know that. If Jonah got to dish out justice, it would probably go quite differently for the Ninevites. Do you agree? (laughs) But also there's a confession, I think, in God's question to us at the end of Jonah that your life doesn't come to you neatly packaged with simple solutions. That there are complexities to your way of living. There are things you have done that you are not proud of, and yet you also are a good person. And there are people who have done things to you that have hurt you, but maybe they're not always bad people. And we would often react so quickly to the injustices that are done to us and not sure how to do it. And even if we can't figure out that, then when we do encounter people who appear to be genuinely bad, are we qualified to to navigate those waters and deal with them? And what Jonah shows us is that once heat anger gets involved, you know, most of us, you know, is it right that you're angry? Yes, it is. Because that sense of injustice drives us that we think we need to be able to put it back together again. There's a text here from Philip Carey in in, in his Jonah commentary. I might not read this whole thing, but I think this is worth us paying attention to. Uh, Philip says this, he says, we must be clear where Jonah gets it wrong. It's not as if we should never desire justice. It is good news when an oppressor is toppled the terrorist caught, and the torturer brought to justice. The Lord does indeed take vengeance on his enemies. And if you go after Jonah and read Nahum, you realize that Nineveh do end up in some trouble in the future because they don't stick to the ways that Jonah calls them to. Sorry for the sad ending. But God does indeed take vengeance on his enemies because he is the enemy of all who destroy his world. 
But here's the bit I want you to hold fast to. The great danger is that instead of simply rejoicing at the vindication of the oppressed, we self-righteously identify ourselves as the oppressed, taking pity on ourselves and not others. In our imaginations, the Lord becomes a weapon in our campaign to destroy our enemies, an instrument of our own revenge rather than the righteous judge of all the earth. And I wonder if Carey's got it right because I feel like he's, he's put his finger on the raw button or the raw buzzer in our own hearts there that we see Jonah and ourselves in this. It's not that God isn't just. It's the type of justice that we want from God often isn't just. Let me say it like this. I think Jonah reminds us that we all love gatekeeping. Whether it's over issues of politics, gender, race, behavior, we love dividing the world up into people that are on our side and people that are on the wrong side. And it kind of makes us feel comfortable. And I think what Jonah as Christians calls us to is a remembrance that a significant work that the gospel does in our hearts is to stop us doing that. A significant work of Jesus is to invite us to not live like that. Just think for a moment of all the stories of Jesus you've heard and how so often Jesus is fighting that desire that we have to break the world up into our people who are right and everybody else who is wrong. And the complexity of the Nineveh story is that the Ninevites repent. The Ninevite cows repent. So Jonah's being told, stop putting limits on who can repent and who can't repent. Because the way you're cutting the world up, Jonah, isn't right. Stop gatekeeping. You know, it's Pentecost Sunday next week, which reminds us we're still in this space between Easter and Pentecost. And I, I, I am struck by the fact that the tomb of Jesus was guarded by Roman soldiers. They were deciding who was in and who was out. Nobody's getting in to pretend that Jesus is not there. Jesus isn't getting out. You know what Jesus did to that, right? So there's this beautiful sense of the Easter story that calls us to realize that God does not enjoy gatekeeping. Paul in 2 Corinthians 5 and verse 17, he says this, if anyone is in Christ, a new creation has come. The old is gone, the new is here. And all of this is from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation, that God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting people's sins against them. And he has committed to us the message of reconciliation. So I've said this before, but let me say it again. God did not count people's sins against them. Let me be really clear on this. God didn't not count people's sins so that you would have something to do. You know, like, like, no worries, God, we've got the sin counting. You don't need to do it. We're on it. We'll keep good track. But we do often act as the church like that is our job, that we'll do the counting because God doesn't want to do the counting. God doesn't count people's sins against them because he's tired of math. It's because this is not how God works. This is the reconciliating God. Jonah, like many of us, like me in my own life so often, confuses his role as ambassador of Christ's reconciliation. Jonah instead chooses the role of kind of nightclub bouncer. I'm gonna decide who comes in and who comes out. And that's how it's gonna be. And I wonder if we don't do that sometimes ourselves. I'm gonna ask you to stand with me. 
Just this week, Tim Keller, well-renowned pastor in New York, wrote a lot of Christian, very helpful Christian books, uh, passed away. And, uh, and I was reflecting on some aspects of, of, of Tim's writing, and I, and I came across this quote here. The main way Christians can be a resource to the broader culture is by restoring the church to being a well-known community of forgiveness and reconciliation. I think that's what Jonah's calling us to. And that's what I'd love to invite us to wrestle with as we go forward from today. But we're gonna do this by this. One more thing we all need to do together, and that is let us speak the Lord's Prayer together. Because as we come together in one voice, we offer this prayer that Jesus taught us, this radical and very hard to pray prayer. I wanna invite you to say it with me, if you will. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as in heaven. Give us today our daily bread. And let's just hold the prayer right there. Okay, because here's what I want to ask you to do. There's somebody in your mind that you will not show mercy to or don't want to show mercy to or don't understand how to show mercy to. This prayer doesn't solve that problem for us, but it asks us to do this. Forgive us, Lord, in the same way as we forgive others. And in the process of being forgiven by God, we learn how to forgive and show mercy. So just take a pause and ask God to bring somebody to your mind that perhaps needs your forgiveness. It might be very difficult to pray. It might not mean that you run out tomorrow and offer forgiveness to them. But asking the Lord to just invite you into this place because God, I don't want to be like Jonah, full of heat anger. Instead, let's pray this. Forgive us our sins as we forgive those who sin against us. Save us from the time of trial and deliver us from evil. For the kingdom, power, and the glory are yours now and forever. Amen. Go in God's grace and peace and enjoy the rest of your weekend. God bless.